Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Kukara, with my fantastic guest, Dr. Sharna Prasad, doctor of physical therapy and pain specialist extraordinaire. And uh, Sharna, great to see you as always. Do you have anything specific you would like to talk about, or should I just throw this this hand grenade go out onto right the floor. Ahead. Go right ahead. I never think of what you want to talk about. So I'll say, go with what you think. All right. Well, this one was again, I had, these are from questions that people sent in at the painwebinar.com, which is a monthly training I do every month. And they email me directly uh, and just say, Hey, I, I want to ask about question about this uh, to Dr. Kevin at straightshothealth.com. And the question or one of the questions that we answered, or at least discussed on that webinar uh was, is it necessary to process childhood trauma to heal from chronic pain? And what I really loved about this particular question is we're sort of in this realm, right, where there's the world of pain. There's the people who think acute pain is different than chronic pain. Acute pain is easy. Chronic pain is the hard, challenging stuff. And then there is a pocket of people who are doing really, really good work, and they still see pain in that, still in that dichotomous role that somehow there's acute nociceptive pain and there's chronic pain, and then they're moving, the, oh, well, or they'll use the words physical and emotional pain, like acute pain's physical, and then chronic pain is emotional pain. And they still haven't put in those pieces together. And they're, again, they're doing some fantastic work. There's some apps designed it, around it. I've talked to many of the clinicians who are involved, and they're really, really good people. But it ends up with this, one of the approaches is, well, your chronic pain or your persistent pain now is because of this un uh, or the suppressed childhood trauma. And so one of the techniques that some of these clinicians do is they're processing childhood trauma. They, it's really important that you go back and you remember all these horrible events in your childhood and then you express them by, you know, sometimes they'll have you imagine you're there and beaten on pillows or things. And, it, and uh, no question, for some people it really works really well. But I would also say that for a lot of people, you don't necessarily have to go back and relive all those experiences in order to heal. Um, we've seen it. Uh, I know, you know some of the people that, that we know who've done some really fantastic work, they don't do it. They, you know, we're not ignoring childhood trauma, folks. I just want to make really sure that you understand that because we understand and we know there's a, the, the science has this link between childhood trauma and what I call threat sensitivity and how that relates with, uh, with your brain processing information as you grow older and how that relates to pain. So we're never ignoring childhood trauma. Um, but I guess what I would say is you don't have to go back and like do the Freudian thing where you're lying on the couch reliving all these events from your your childhood in order to get better from persistent pain. But what are what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree with you 100%. But I, I believe that as clinicians, we need to understand trauma. That's for sure. We need to be trauma-informed clinicians. And if you need more information on that, we have a great website called Trauma-Informed Oregon that has short videos, great ways to get yourself informed. But we need to be trauma-informed. That goes without saying. PTs have a big issue with trauma because they say, oh, they're, they're talking about their childhood. I, I can't handle that. No, 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 no. We have to learn how to listen to that. But does that mean we need to sit on a couch and process all those traumas? Absolutely not. It's beyond my scope of practice to be going over there. Absolutely. But, but let me give you an example because I, I talk with stories, right? So I, I, if a patient comes to you and I say, tell me a story, and they start, when I was nine years old 
and I was playing in the playground and doing monkey bars, and I fell from there and broke my back. Yes, I am going to listen to that story. I am going to acknowledge that that story has an impact on your pain today because you are still thinking my back is broken when I was nine years old. And my job is to assure you that, hey, your back is not broken because physiology tells us that even if your back was broken, then it has healed. And it only takes three to six months for it to heal. So what you are having right now is a very hypersensitive brain. So, I mean, that story, when I, when I had a patient who told me that, like, you know, she fell from a monkey bar. And, she, and, and it was so vivid. The story was so vivid because she said, I fell. And then I went and went to the lady who was managing the playground. And she said, yeah, yeah, just go to your classroom. And then I went to the classroom and my teacher saw me and she said, oh my gosh, you need to go to see the nurse. I went to the nurse's bed, I mean, where the bed was, and it was made of, you know, whatever, rectin or what, whatever the material. She said, I shook my head and the pebbles fell from my hair and I can still hear the sound of that pebble falling on that bed. It was so vivid, you know, mm -hmm. so I knew that that incident had a lot to do with it. And all I did was just listen to that story and what it did to her body and how her body was reacting to that story. And I said, watch this. Just watch. You sharing that story is ramping up your whole nervous system. And that's what we're talking about. Let's, let's bring you down to the moment and let's stay in this moment and just take a few deep breaths. That, that was how hard. And she said, then I called my mother and my mother was not available to come and take me. And I was in so much pain and my mother's friend came and picked me and I'll never forget her the hug she gave me and that whole memory of course that story has to be acknowledged but does that mean that in therapy we're just talking about when she was nine years old how did it feel what was your mom doing what no no not at all so anyway so I had to share that story because that's what it reminded me of childhood trauma. And, and, and it's that's just one small story, but there is so much. We, we live in, um, where I work is a rural community. We have a lot of childhood trauma. The ACEs scores, um, adverse childhood experience, we have patients somewhere, anywhere between five to 10 scores. That, that's just very high. So we have to be very trauma-informed. We have to be very kind about this. And we have to be careful when you're kind because sometimes their abusers were very kind to them. Mm -hmm. So that can trigger the whole process also. So being trauma-informed is, I think, for physical therapists and all allied healthcare providers and teachers and everyone, the whole, whole place needs to be trauma-informed. Well, if you're if you're in any way, shape, or form involved with healthcare, you should be trauma informed because exactly. we know the effects of early life stresses on physical and mental health. Right? That's not like either or; it's and, um, which is get frustrating. And the majority of people that we're going to be seeing, oftentimes in the healthcare system, have trauma because they are sick, and um, and they're distressed. So we need to have we need to be able to relate that in such a way. A couple of things that, that I want to clarify here is we were t talking about childhood tr trauma and, the, and having to process it. That is very, very different than hearing someone's pain story and pulling out these meaningful events, which is what you did, right? So you're saying, you know, you don't have to lie on the couch and say, well, just tell me about your childhood and I'm just going to sort of 
figure out, oh, you know, you were you have the suppressed anger because of all this trauma in your childhood. Instead, you listen to the pain story, and that is what I would call an anchoring event. And I, you know, I tell clinicians that if your patient starts and it says, you know, in 1962, and I can see the doctors, ah, that has nothing to do with today's visit. No, it has if that's where they're starting with their pain, it has everything to do with that visit because they're gonna tell you what the memories were that creates the future meaning of their pain. And when we also understand the relationship between pain and memory, there is a very tight interplay. If you want to understand why you can vividly remember these things is because your brain is designed to do it. If you have these high distressful events, the brain is almost going to take a flashlight or I should say a snapshot of it in such a way to say, this is awful. Remember this so that if any sort of similar scenarios are in the future, we're ready. And so those, those anchor events are key, but that's not you know, lying on the couch or anything. That's listen to the pain narrative. And this reflects on something we talked about in I think the last episode was from a clinical perspective, so much of it is about the meaning. Mm-hmm. So if then you can take that meaning from that anchor event and then just to, to return a sense of control from this traumatic, oh, my back was broken because I fell off the monkey bars and it's always you know, never going to be the same to, you know, you had this event, your body healed. But what your brain did is it took this information in such a way and said, I don't want this to happen again. So mm-hmm. I'm going to be hyper protective now. And now we're changing the dialogue in such a way that res- is returning a sense of control to the client. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, but that's not like what. You know, people are like, do I have to go and write everything about my child? No, you don't. If you want to, go ahead. But from a clinical perspective, you don't have to do it. Exactly. And from exactly. a physical therapist standpoint, this is the other thing, because I know we've talked about this, is a lo- one of the parts from a physical therapy thing is, and when it comes to pain, is they're like, well, we're not psychologists. Well, you don't have to be a psychologist. You're not going to be treating okay. depression. You're not doing it. All you're doing is listening to the story. Mm-hmm. Right. But. Yeah. And I had one um, clinician, physician come in and we were talking about pain and it's like, well, I'm sick and tired of treating chronic pain patients because they come in and they tell you the same story a hundred times. I said, wow, that's really hard, isn't it? But you know what? I didn't say this. I wish I had the guts to say that, but I did not. I said, if you heard the story and made them realize that you had heard it, like that that's where that um, motivational interviewing skills come in that that reflective listening that you help them listen to that story and had that story in your chart so every time they came back and you you referenced that or you brought up something that they had told you last time so that they felt like you remembered what they had told you i mean i had like extra detailed notes about their dog's name and, you know, their kids' names and what they told me about that. Because that's more important to them than telling them, do this exercise three sets of 10. Mm-hmm. We need, I mean, as from physical therapy standpoint, we need to move away from that. Absolutely. We're done with that. Because nobody does three sets of 10. It's very, very annoying. But <laughs> if you tell them that I like to go for a walk with my wife and it says, hey, what about going for a five-minute walk with your wife, just five minutes. What do you think that would be meaningful? That's more meaningful than your three sets of ten. Sorry, I, I have my issues. I so, have my soapbox. Well, I, I, I love five. that because <laughs> you kind of you can see interaction, like human or interaction, it, it progresses, right? So we're sort of in this dance. Every, every, every interaction that we have with somebody else is sort of this dance, and we can either get stuck or we can progress or we can regress. And if someone has told you the same story a hundred times, you're obviously not progressing. <laughs> so, so maybe, 
we need to take a minute of time and appreciate the story. And once you understand that story, then we can take the next step. But until that story is understood, we're not going to go anywhere. But that's where burnout is, yeah. right? That's what you're talking about. If a patient is telling a story a hundred times and the physician is feeling that, oh my God, this is here, it comes again. You're, you're stuck. We're, the patient's not benefiting. The, the clinician is running into burnout. Lose-lose situation. Yep. So something different needs to happen. What is that Einstein quote, you know? I think you'll know it. I can't remember. Like you do the same, same thing, thing over and over again is the definition of insanity. But uh, it's always attributed to Einstein, but actually it wasn't Einstein that said it. It wasn't Einstein. So who was no. it? Uh, I don't think they know. It was, it, okay. it, you know, they, they, with, this is totally off topic, but with quotes, a lot of times there will be a really great quote. And to give it substance, they'll attribute to somebody who's really famous. And this oh, is one okay. of those types of quotes. Because it's a great quote. We just don't know who, who it's actually attributed who it was to. From. Okay, well, we won't give him credit. Then. Yeah, but, but kind of returning on topic, though, what that I can, you know, from a, because, again, pain, pain, stress, everything is so tightly wound with horrible outcomes that we have for persistent pain and also so tightly integral to clinical burnout. And if, if you're not seeing the details, again, this goes back to universal pain literacy for healthcare providers, but when you're hearing that same, that same story over and over again, one reaction is this isn't telling me what I want to hear. They're selling me the same thing over and over again. It does nothing. Nothing. And so I'm, you know, it's, we're going to have the same visit that we had every other time. I'm not going to, I'm feeling I, I should be, I have 14 patients backed up. This is a waste of my time. All the stuff where now you're feeling outside of your, your, your comfort zone, or at least in the, in a competent zone. Or the other way is like what you were saying, where you flip it. And you, instead of thinking, well, this this story isn't important to me, the question is, well, what is it about this this story that's important to them? And that is something. If you are a clinician, that's something that you can explore. So if you have a challenging client and you're hearing that story a hundred times, and they the next time in your in your visit, instead of you know doing the same thing over and over again and not listening, is to try something different. So, well, okay, wait. If they're saying this story over and over again, what is it about this story? That's important to them. And at least you're trying something different. Right. So maybe you're going to have a different experience. And it doesn't matter whether you're a physician or a physical therapist or occupational therapist or social worker. That little switch right there at least provides you a new, a, a new path that you can at least explore. And the fact that you're labeling a patient challenging patient, that is the time for you to say, what is the challenge in you that you find that this patient is challenging for you mm -hmm. not that the patient is challenging let's not label the patient because it's our skill set that we are lacking that we are not able to meet our patients so it's a lot of accountability on our end which i mean i think it's great because i i constantly like to challenge myself and say oh gosh i totally messed this up you know and luckily i have i do have a few Workers who are very good at debriefing and help me recover from my oh gosh I, I totally messed this up and all that but it is always that of, did our values crash did the clash was this patient expecting something totally different and I did not wait to hear it and most of the time it is when I am in a rush to tell them what I know oh my gosh I can't tell you enough how many times have I regretted that that I have not waited for them to be ready to listen to what I have to say. And in my 
rush to get them better soon that I am telling. It's just, just like kids, right? Mm-hmm. When your kids are getting, you know, younger, older and all that, and they, you want to tell them, don't do that. That's a dumb thing to do. But you, you can't tell them because you want them to learn by, you know, when they're ready to listen. And that's more meaningful. So that I, I do have a hard time with that sometimes. I think but we all do. But lesser now. Sorry? <laughs> I, think, I think we all do. I think we all do. Uh, yeah. I think that's a, a, it's another human nature thing. But at least if you are aware of it, then you can start taking the steps to address it. And, and an easy one for, you know, you, you don't even have to do this with a patient, folks. So what you, you just do is any next, next time you're having a discussion with somebody, see, just kind of be mindful of how much are you actually listening to them versus, oh, I have something I want to say. And you're looking for a place where you can say it. And if you're honest with yourself, you're going to see that happens quite a bit. Um, and that's human. It's nature. You know, it's, it's nature. But but once you kind of, again, once you're a little bit more aware of these things, then you can start working on actually listening. That, and that's, that can be really, really hard work. I think active listening is is hard, which is why I also think we don't do it all the time because it is energy intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Telling is easy. Listening is hard. So Yeah. Listening is very challenging. Now, I, 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 I do think that I benefit a lot from motivational interviewing. Um, I do like their skills a lot and how they train you and, you know, get back to it. And, and reflect the reflective listening part, af- affirmation is their big tool that I like, is, you know, um, catching your patient doing something right. And I, I love using that a lot. And um, it's like, oh, uh, like I lost. 20 pounds in the last year and I was like oh my gosh and losing five pounds a year for me has been so hard the hats off to you losing 20 pounds that's impressive and their their eyes light up and they 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 see that my god the clinician is acknowledging how hard this job is and yeah it, it is hard to lose weight we all know that mm-hmm. so so I'm not faking it I'm very, I'm very authentic with my responses and um and that that tool is really that if there's one tool you want to take away from is the affirmation piece that affirm the patient and give them that reflective listening now mi is uh is, is really really a great tool set and uh, and there's so many kind of layers to it when you're talking about it, it made me think about um one of my favorite classes i took in college and i've been trying to figure this out like when ma mi sort of came onto the stage because we didn't have, it wasn't MI. The whole, the whole class was on reflective listening. So I'm, mm-hmm. it, I, I'm, I'm thinking, because this was in the early 90s, that it was probably about, I should just look it up, but uh, someone was taking the reflective listening. But I, I remember, because I did the class, and then I was a TA for a class, and I just, the reflective listening, it was so hard. I mean, when you have, you're literally taking one year in college all about reflective listening, that's probably something that more of us should kind of pay attention to. Um, and then also just like, it's not, it's definitely not easy. <laughs> and I, I should have been practicing it all my life and make things a lot better, but I, I obviously was not. So <laughs> well, we can beat ourselves or say, Hey, tomorrow's another day. We'll start <laughs> doing better. So, yeah. Well, or give permission. Like, as I said, it is, it is hard. And um, personally, I, I don't beat myself up all the time as much. I still beat myself up, but, uh, with recognizing is there sometimes that you just don't have the energy to do it. And if you do that mindfully as well, it's the same thing as if you're on a diet and you recognize, you know, I, I shouldn't be eating this thing or, you know, I know there's a should in there, but this is not the best thing for me, but I am going to do it. I choose to do it and I'm mindful and I'm accepting the consequences of that. 
um, you know, then okay, fine. You know, yeah. same thing, same thing. Yeah. If I'm not gonna listen, I'm not ready to listen right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, but at least if you're aware, there's a point where you can choose to change. If you are unaware, change is but, really, really hard to do. Exactly, exactly, and that that's the that's the big thing is the awareness, right? Mm-hmm. So w- if you have clinicians who start becoming aware that what I have been doing has not been working, or what I've been doing can use a little bit more. Um, piece to it like i had one of my co-workers very new to our department come to me and said you know i'm i'm an athletic trainer and i work with a lot of um what do you call that acute patients but i want to know what can i give them for preventive stuff so i was like yeah i think you're ready for a conversation let's let's have that i mean we we have we haven't had it yet but i was like yeah let's let's get started on this we there's a lot we can share um not just acute as we had talked last time is it's there's so much more to acute pain um pain is pain i mean what what more to acute pain there's pain and then there's pain there's acute and then there's chronic and then there's emotional and there's psychological uh or social it's all pain, pain. it's all has different contributors to the same experience i mean to a different experience you know yeah. just different contributors that's what makes it so complex and so simple you know to, it's complex and simple and i don't know how to explain that well that, that's you know that's why I, I i created the fire triangle because if you there that an analogical comparison to something that is fundamentally so simple fire is fundamentally simple fuel oxygen heat coming together to yes. construct a process that process then is dynamic and that process is influenced by all sorts of things. Once the process is going, you have the environmental factors, you have the weather patterns, you have the geographical uh, uh, topography that's going to influence it, right? And the same thing when it comes to pain is if you just recognize these three fundamental components to it, and if you understand those, then everything else layers on. Like then you can see how the 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 social construct is, the the environment that they're living is, the uh, the distress whether it is micro distress or macro distress on the stage of, say, of a COVID epidemic, you can take this very complex process, reduce it, but you're not dumbifying it or taking away or, or taking away the, 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 the beauty of just how complex this amazing thing is, but making it understandable in such a way that we can apply it and make it useful now. Um, exactly. Yeah, anyway, I... I I'm just gonna, I just want to wax on that because pain is just amazing. I, I, I still get just absolutely chills just thinking about it, it you know, and people, oh, you're crazy or this. And, and I'm sure someone is actually it, it's, is suffering and they're saying, Dr. Kukaro and Dr. Prasad, you guys are crazy. This is horrible. But there's this complex and in, 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 in beauty in it that really underlines life like and if you start understanding this stuff you can it i don't know it, it, it yeah it, I, I i know what you're saying you, you've made me a paniac um you know i, I can't say you've made me but <laughs> you've kind of this whole transformation started and now it's like so nerdy i'm like reading one or two articles every day and then i'm forwarding it to my colleagues and they're like oh my gosh here comes another article but so i have to be careful that i don't forward too many so but yes it is amazing and i can't stop reading about it and when my kids are starting to say hey stop using the p word so much um so i have to or if i start telling them something and they're like 
don't need to. I don't need this right now. Keep remembering that part also. It's like, oh, yeah. Stop, Sharnat. Stop giving your advice to everyone who doesn't need it, who doesn't want it. You know. Well, that's why I love about our chats, right? Is because it's it when you have something that you just that is so important. And you want to discuss it because you just love it so much. And there's so many details. Um, and I guess it was like anything that, you know, if you're, I'm sure there's an electrician out there that just absolutely loves being an electrician and understands all the wires and, and voltage requirements or whatever. And um, I'm, you know, maybe they'd want to talk to me about that, but I am not an electrician. Interested in that. so, and yeah. that's why I remember our, we would go on trips to, um, you know, uh, Washington Seattle. Yeah, or yeah. wherever. And then I was like, Kevin, I need to record this because I want to listen to this and whatever way you're talking, I want to hear it because I don't think I have the depth to understand all the words you're using. So I want to re-listen to it. It was fun. I have, I have a whole bunch of your recordings. I think it'll be fun to listen to them again too. Yeah, they're, they're, always, they're always good chats. And that actually, um, so we're not going too long here, but um, we, we're, off, we're talking many times about the importance of, of pain education for the clinician and in, in creating an embodied practice where you are, you are delivering care through the lens of pain science, not poking them with pain science. You're delivering it through that lens. And that allows you to see as well as allows to deliver as well. Um, I also think that it is the more that you understand pain, what you find is that it starts to expand beyond the micro. Like mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of people focusing on really, really thing, really, really tiny things that sure they're important, but on the grand scheme, they're not. Like if you were focusing on ion channels, to be honest, unless you are like a, uh, a molecular biologist or maybe involved in pharmaceuticals, maybe from a clinical standpoint, it's irrelevant. You want to be able to recognize it. Sure. And kind of be able to tie it in maybe with your, if you, if you have prescriptive authority, there's some implications there. But the rest of the time, it doesn't really necessarily matter. Instead, is like if you the macro thing is when you start looking at all this other stuff. What's the human dimension? What does it mean to perceive? What does it to mean when a when a brain constructs experiences emergently, but we perceive them in a sequential manner? What are what are the implications there? How do social dynamics interplay with this? How does communication impact this? What are the direct and indirect indirect effects of language? What are direct and indirect effects of a treatment? Are, what is framing? You know, what is staging? All, all the stuff comes together. And then, you know, that's the part that gets exciting to me because it, it just starts going, expanding and expanding boom, and expanding boom, boom, boom. and exp yeah. outwards rather than in, you're getting so tight. And then I get all frustrated when I see, a, you know, when my physician colleagues and they're like, well, you know, they just found this receptor subtype, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, are you in drug research? No. Are you treating patients? Yeah. That is not going to help your patient. <laughs> this other stuff will. Yeah. And it's more fun too i think yeah. but and so, uh, to me the social factors are the biggest then the psychological factors and then it's the biology which is the smallest factor but if you address that whole thing and, and doesn't i mean they are big factors but where is the patient leading you and that's where the narrative becomes the most important piece because if the patient's leading you to the biology then by all means direct them to mm -hmm, the biology mm -hmm. but then find out what else because we we know that the social contributors are the biggest contributors you know so if you're not addressing those in this micro thing that we are doing this manipulation or uh, you know this whole discussion that we have on omt and uh, manual therapy and mobilization and all it's 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 in this micro space it doesn't in, matter what you're doing it's touch oh and and um touch. 
I'm, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to jump in here. I'm not l- reflective listening. You know, I, I no, wanted to jump fine. in, but but there because that, that's such an important point because too often I see people do almost this mental masturbation of how they can justify what they want. It's sort of like talking, right? Is how they can justify what they want to do. So because they like to do it, it makes them feel better. Maybe it it it, it gives them a sense. And a lot of, I I do think there's a lot of ego involved because now I can say I quote unquote fix the person. You know, but they, they, I got into a discussion once, this was years ago, with a very, very well-known pain person, and we were talking about opioids and this, that, the other thing, and really these little doses, like someone who's on mega doses of opioid per day. We're talking 100, 200, 300 morphine equivalents a day, and they're taking five milligrams in addition to that. From a pharmacological standpoint, that amount is such a small, tiny amount that the direct pharmacological effects are negligible. And they were like, oh, you know, um, yeah, we know that there's indirect and framing and blah, 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 all these other things that are just as real and just as important to any benefit with that five milligram dose in the face of overwhelming exogenous opioid. But then they wanted to say, well, you know, a pharmacist was talking about how this small receptor subtype. And I'm like, now what you're trying to do is to take a piece of data that has not been confirmed, has not been reproduced, but what it does is it lets it fit into our existing biases. So if I use this pill, they get better, and now it's a direct effect of the pharmacologically, rather than what is the the, you know, the relationship with the patient, the framing effects, the expectation of what that therapy is going to do, because they focus on sort of these micro real details. PT space, I see it a lot with um, with trigger points in dry needling, and it's the same. You know, how could you say that you understand pain science really, really well? and understand how pain is in the brain, and then pretend that your needle, mixing it in, sticking into a muscle belly to find some, you know, sort of trigger, which can't, nobody's been able to reproduce either manually or not, so who knows where we're sticking them in there, and that you're doing some micro-modulation of a peripheral nerve that is fundamentally the core part of changing someone's human experience. Like, I as an interventional pain specialist, I went to the DRG, which is a much bigger nerve and is a amalgamation, and I directly pulsed that, and the data sucks. So are we trying to reaffirm and, and to justify what we want to do, or are we actually going to step back a little bit and see the big picture of how this stuff interrelates? But anyway, that's my little soapbox that I had to get on because it, it, it is so frustrating to me when it I see that over and over again. Yes, and then they'll say, well, it's acute pain. We can give injections in acute and subacute. Oh, chronic pain is all in the head. I was like, oh, okay, all pain is pain. So if you are all about injections and all about, you know, all these little interventions, you're still in that micro space. You are missing that big picture that we just talked about. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, in, in, the, in the acute space, if there is a significant nociceptive contributor, then injections make a lot of sense. Like as a, if you are an anesthesiologist and you're doing regional anesthesia in the middle of someone who's got complex rib fractures or you're doing it for preoperative care, meaning they're going into a surgery, and then postoperative care where you have somebody who's got this high nociceptive load, you are not quote unquote, treating their pain per se, what you're doing is you're addressing the nociceptive contribution to their pain. But that is only one of many different inputs. When we step back into the persistent pain realm, though, and we don't have that primary or strong contributor from a peripheral nociceptive component, your injection isn't isn't doing anything directly. It's all the indirect effects that are that are important. And and we've talked about this. All, you know, the entrapment effects are the ones that are most concerning. Because you, when you're externalizing control from the patient to you, 
in a situation where that is inappropriate, ultimately you haven't done that person long-term good. You may have done, you may, they short-term, they may be saying, oh, you know, Dr. So-and-so, you quote unquote fixed me. Um, but you haven't done anything long-term to return a sense of control, empower that patient and get them back to living the life again, rather than seeing you all the time. Anyway. All right. Well, I'm sorry. I, I kind of went off and you kind of got me fired well, up there a little bit. Well, that's what happens when the two of us start talking. <laughs> we fire each other up. So it's that whole entrapment and empowerment piece. I love that analogy of yours because I use it all the time and it makes it so clear. It's like passive treatments, you're entrapping a patient. Active treatments, you're empowering the patient. You choose. Mm-hmm. At this stage as a clinician, you choose because oh, 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 I, I'm still teaching them pain science and I'm still doing manual therapy. But you're giving that implicit information to the patient that this person is touching me, manipulating me, and I am getting better and he's fixing me. So that implicit information is harder than anything else. But anyway, that's that's. So I, I don't think we've gone into depth. We've we've obviously talked about it a couple of times, but let's withhold off and use that as another episode where we can talk about the difference between empowering therapies and entrapment therapies and the importance from both a clinical as well as personal perspective. I think that would be a great future discussion. We will do that. All right. Do you have anything else that you would like to tell the listeners or viewers if they're watching this on video? No, I think uh, we've covered most of it. I, I say just be kind to yourself as you go through the changes in your belief system. Um, listen to the evidence, sit back, think about it, go back to the evidence, and, and see what, what kind of an emotional reaction you're going through because it's challenging our belief system, and it doesn't happen that easily. So be kind to yourself. That would be my... Yeah, no, I, that's, a, that's a great point. Um... It almost makes me think if people are if people are like oh this is so easy I'm like well then we're we're probably missing something because this it isn't I mean this is a this is really it's a fundamental easy. thing it isn't easy but uh, anyway you should definitely be kind because but it's a beautiful journey it is a it yeah, is a beautiful journey it is a fun. fun challenging like a really hard hike up the mountain but uh, anyway. All right, folks. Well, thank you for joining us at Straight Shot Health today. It was a wonderful um, discussion again with one of my favorite pain specialists, Dr. Sharna Prasad. Again, if you have any questions or if you have comments, things that you would like us to address in a future episode, you can email me directly at drkevin at straightshothealth.com. Um, also, this web, this episode is sponsored by the Pain Webinar. Why is it sponsored? Because it's my webinar. We have monthly live pain training at thepainwebinar.com that you can participate in. And until next time, stay well. Thanks, folks. <laughs>